Superman, although a character created over 50 years ago, is still a character that holds the fascination of many. Because Superman doesn't come from our planet. And Superman possesses some pretty amazing abilities that normal humans don't possess. He can fly. Who would like to fly? <laughs> he can see through walls with X-ray vision. Who, when they were young, you know, got a comic and you could buy those X-ray goggles, you know, those X-ray glasses? Who actually sent off to buy those X-ray glasses when they were a kid? No one here? He has superhuman strength. He can shoot lasers out of his eyes. Talk about hogging all of the superpowers. I mean, all the Batman has is just a utility belt <laughs> in comparison. You know, Superman is practically invincible. But there is one thing, one area of weakness that Superman has, and that is kryptonite. Kryptonite, this fictional radioactive substance from his home planet, Krypton. And when he encounters kryptonite, he becomes weaker than any human being. You know, for all of his amazing strength and abilities, just one little piece of kryptonite can be Superman's undoing. You know, I wonder, what is your kryptonite? What is the one thing that could possibly destroy you? You know, for many people, they think that their kryptonite is their own inadequacies or weaknesses. But what we're going to see from Exodus chapter 4 today is that feelings of inadequacy are not a problem to God. But there is something else that God takes very seriously in the lives of his servants. Today we're in our fourth week of our series, Becoming a Person Whom God Can Use. And we've come up to Exodus chapter 4 this morning. So if you haven't opened up your Bibles, open them up and follow along in Exodus chapter 4. And just to recap what we've been learning, in Exodus chapter 1, we saw that in order to become a person whom God can use, we need to honor God's word above the word of men. The Hebrew midwives, they didn't honor Pharaoh's word. They honored the word of God. And this is because they feared the Lord. And if you want to be a person whom God can use, you need to have a high regard for his word. You need to honor his word above all else even though it may cost you. And then in Exodus chapter 2, we saw that the people whom God uses are people of character. And we saw that Moses' character was forged by his family upbringing and also his failures. And we said that if you want to become a person who God can use, then you don't allow your past to trap you, but you bring your past brokenness and your past failures to the cross so that you can be cleansed and changed, so that you can move forward. And then last week, as we came into Exodus chapter 3, we saw that Moses encountered God at the burning bush. There was this amazing sight that he saw, this bush that was burning, but yet not burned up by the presence of the fire within. And we said last week that the people whom God used, they turn aside when God interrupts their lives with burning bushes, and they turn back to him. They surrender themselves to him and say, Lord, I will go where you are sending me. Because they are assured that his presence will go with them, that his favor will be upon them, and that his power will be demonstrated through them. And as we said last week, we saw that what God wanted from Moses is he wanted his feet. Because how blessed, we said last week, are the feet of those who bring the good news. Aren't you so thankful that someone was willing to go to take the good news to you? That someone was willing to take the good news to you? And today we come to Exodus chapter 4, and as I said, each and every week, I'm giving you the lesson up front, so you can take a picture of it, 
right on your phone, or you can like write it down on your phone, and so you'll have it for later. And here is the lesson for this week from Exodus chapter 4. The people whom God uses lay down what is in their hand before him, and they understand that what God requires most from them is personal integrity. Let me say that again. The people whom God uses, they lay down before him what is in their hands, and they understand that what God requires most from them is personal integrity. You know, as we come into Exodus chapter 4 this morning, we see that Moses, God tells Moses to lay down what is in his hand before him. And Moses is still at the burning bush. And as we saw last week, at, at first, when Moses was at the burning bush, he turned his face away from God's holiness. But as he and God started to talk with one another, Moses became more free in his conversation. And he says in verse 11, Who am I, Lord, that I should do this great task of deliverance? And the Lord said, Don't worry, Moses. I will go with you. And then in verse 13, he said, But God, what if the people ask me, What is your name? And God said, Don't worry, Moses. Just tell them that I am has sent you. And then he gave Moses his name, Yahweh, the name that he would be known for throughout all generations. And then finally, last week, we saw that the Lord surfaced Moses' fear. Moses would have been afraid of Pharaoh because Pharaoh was the most powerful man of the time who was in charge of the most powerful kingdom of this time. And God said, don't worry, Moses, about Pharaoh. I will do my wonders. I will do wonders through you. But whereas, get this, in chapter 3, Moses had all these questions. Now in chapter 4, Moses states outright his feelings of inadequacy. Look down in verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me, or listen to my voice. For they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. You see, now we see what was behind the other two questions. It was these deep feelings of personal inadequacy. Have you ever had deep feelings of personal inadequacy? Like you just don't have what it takes? Well, notice what the Lord says to Moses in verse 2. He says, what is in your hand? And Moses responds, a staff. Now, this staff would have been the tool of Moses' trade. Remember that he had been a, a shepherd for the past 40 years. And so he would have used this crook, this shepherd's crook, often. When a wolf came along, he would have hit it on the head with a staff. When a, when a sheep got out of, out, of, out of place, he would have drawn the sheep back with, with his shepherd's crook. And so this staff represented his livelihood. It was his security. It was the means by which he provided for his family. It was all he'd ever known for the past 40 years was being a shepherd. And that was all wrapped up in his shepherd's staff. But notice what the Lord asks him to do with it in verse 3. He says to Moses, throw it to the ground. So God is asking him to throw this staff down before the burning bush where he is manifesting his holy presence. And notice what happens when he throws it to the ground in verse 3. We read this, that when Moses threw his staff to the ground, it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. So get this. (laughs) This harmless staff that Moses had carried around all these years, that he had used to like poke and stoke the fire, that he'd used to hit on, to hit wolves on the head with, this staff, when thrown before the presence of God, became a serpent. 
Now, Charles Price, in his book, Alive in Christ, he writes this. This was not a magical trick that would impress Moses, and later with which Moses would impress the Egyptian leaders. It is true that this incident was repeated before the leaders of Israel and before Pharaoh, but it did not impress Pharaoh. For the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff and it became a stake. True as it was that this was an immediate demonstration of God's power to Moses, at the same time, there was something more significant to this event. You see, this was a parable. God was teaching Moses something important through this event. You know, we've said before, as we've studied the book of Exodus, that snakes were a part of Egyptian worship. Um, as we've seen, as we've already said from archaeology, they've found, just look up here at this picture, they've found like snakes crafted into the heads, into the crowns of pharaohs. And so the snake was this object of Egyptian idolatry. And obviously behind the serpent was the great serpent of old, the devil. And so when Moses threw down his staff before the presence of God, he found that it could quickly turn into a snake, the symbol of the enemy, the great serpent of old, the devil. But notice God tells him to do something else in verse 4. He says, but it says, the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. Now, Moses would have known something about snakes. He was a shepherd. He lived in the wilderness. He wasn't some city slicker. You know, growing up on a farm, we had snakes all the time come into our farmhouse. And mum and dad became quite experts at killing snakes. <laughs> uh, and you know, I'll never forget the first time that Tegan stayed over at our farmhouse with my family when we were dating. Uh, she was staying in the downstairs room in the farmhouse. And my mother said to her, in all seriousness, she said, make sure, Tegan, you keep the sliding door closed because you don't want a snake to come in at night into your room. And Tegan just laughed. She thought it was a big joke. But when she realized my mum wasn't joking, you know, she made sure that that door was shut <laughs> because she didn't want this snake to come in and crawl into her bed at night. Well, Moses would have known about snakes. And he would have known that there is one thing you never do if you want to catch a snake, and that is what? You never pick it up by the tail, right? Because if you pick a snake up by the tail, what's going to happen? The head is going to, you know, whip around, it's going to bite you. And so if you want to catch a snake, you need to catch it by the head, because then you'll have control of it. Well, again, God was teaching Moses something very important from this miracle. You see, this is a picture of the gospel. In Genesis 3, God had said to the serpent, the devil, he had said that he, the Messiah, will crush your head even though you will bruise his heel. And on the cross, that's exactly what happened. Jesus crushed the head of Satan. As Paul would say in Romans 16 and verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. You know, we don't crush Satan. He is the one who takes care of him. And so you see what God was saying to Moses, he was saying, you pick up the harmless part and you let me take care of the dangerous part, the head. Let me defeat him. Let me crush his head. But I also think the Lord was saying this. Now listen in very carefully. I think he was saying this, Moses, I want you to know the potential your staff of the staff you carry in your hand. You may think that it's useless and perfectly harmless, but I want you to know that it can suddenly become a snake. That good and 
and useful staff harbors a danger, a danger that could destroy you. But if you throw it on the ground before me, it will be exposed by my holiness for what it can potentially become, a snake, a place of temptation. And then notice what happens in verse 4. So Moses put out his hand and he caught it and it became a staff in his hand. Now get this, when Moses picked up this staff, this wasn't just any old staff from now on. This is what was called the staff of God, the instrument through which God would display his power. Look down in verse 17, the Lord says, and take in your hand this staff with which you will do the signs. And look in verse 20, and Moses took the staff of what does it say? The staff of God in his hand. With that same staff, he would now wave it and the waters would part. He would hold it up and the Amalekites would be defeated. He would strike the rock and water would come from it. You see, here is my point this morning. Maybe the Lord is asking you this simple question, what is in your hand? Now, what is in your hand may be as harmless and as useful as Moses' staff was to him. But get this, in your hand and under your control, it may become the means by which the enemy attacks you. You know, how many times do we take good things and we make them idols in our lives? And these good things, therefore, become places of temptation and they may end up destroying us. But if you throw down what is in your hand and you place it under God's control, then it can be used to demonstrate his power. You see, the people whom God uses, they throw down what is in their hand so that now it's under God's control so that he can use it. So let me ask you, what is in your hand this morning? It might be your job. You may have worked hard to get where you are. It may have cost you a lot of effort and time, and it means a lot to you. But will you lay it down before the Lord today? You know, it could be dangerous. I don't know how many times I've seen people who idolize their work. It gets all out of place in their hearts and it becomes the very thing that is the destructive force in their family. But if you lay it at the feet of God, he may give it back to you and your job will become the job of God. Just as Moses' staff became the staff of God, it will be the same job, but now it's under new management And God may do in your workplace things that defy any other explanation other than God is at work. What is in your hand? Maybe for some of you, it's your studies and your ambitions. Will you lay them down at the feet of God and give him the right as the Lord of your life to either give it back to you or take it away? You know, as good and as legitimate as studies and ambitions might be in your hand, under your control, they'll be your studies, your ambitions, and they may become a source of temptation for you. But in God's hands, they will be God's studies and a way of equipping you for a life of effective service to God. You know, what is in your hand might be your family. You know, family is a beautiful gift from God. But if you're a father or a mother, maybe you need to this morning lay your children at the feet of God and give them back to Him. You can be sure that He will give them back to you, but now they will be God's family, God's children. You won't have to control them anymore. And even though there may be times of hardship and grief and sorrow, now the enemy won't have any opportunity to have inroads into your family because your family is God's family. You know, over my summer sabbatical, I felt the Lord tell me to lay the ministry at his feet. You see, somewhere along the line, I'd taken control of it. 
It had become my ministry. And because of Tegan's health, I was not able to return when I had hoped. In fact, I was hoping to come back in January. I was hoping to come back and preach up a storm. And January went by. Then I was hoping to come back in February, preach up a storm. And the elders said to me, no, Timon, you're not going to preach at our church for four weeks. We don't want you to preach here for four weeks. And I felt the Lord say, Timon, lay it down. Lay it down before me. Will you give it to me? Will you give up your ambitions? Will you give over every role to me and seek my kingdom and my righteousness? You see, if you keep what is in your hand, you may keep it. God's not going to force you to t- or twist your arm to give up what's in your hand. But get this. If you keep the staff, you will keep the snake as well. Because it's only when you throw it down before the Lord that the snake is exposed. And then only as you pick it up that it will become something that God now uses. God now uses. Because he's in control of it. So what, are you, what is God asking you to lay down before him this morning? As we've seen, the people who God uses, they lay down what is in their hands before the Lord so that when God tells them to pick it up again, it will be under His control. He will be able to use it for His glory. Now, as we come further into Exodus chapter 4, we see in verse 18 that Moses starts to make his way back to Egypt. And so he gets the permission of his father-in-law Jethro to leave Midian. And he receives from the Lord a revelation that the people who are seeking to kill him is dead. But it's interesting that while the Lord was upset, but was willing to accommodate Moses' objection, there was one thing on his journey back to Egypt that the Lord would not tolerate. Now we've already seen that Moses had all these objections. But in verse 13, we see Moses say to the Lord outright, Oh Lord, please send someone else. Lord, I can't do it. I can't speak. I can't go. And amazingly, while this angered the Lord, the Lord still accommodated him. He told him, I'm going to send Aaron, your brother, and he will be your mouthpiece, and he will speak on your behalf to the people. So it's interesting that Moses' feelings of inadequacy and weakness, while they did displease the Lord, He was still willing to accommodate them. He was still willing to work with his reluctant prophet. But there is one thing that the Lord will not tolerate in the lives of his servants. Look down in verse 24. We read this interesting story, this surprising story. At a lodging place on the way, so he is heading back to Egypt, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. So Moses is finally going back to Egypt. He's had all these objections, but he's finally heading back to Egypt. And at this lodging place on the way, the Lord comes to him and seeks to put him to death. Why? Well, look down in verse 25. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Verse 26. So he, the Lord, let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. So why did the Lord seek to put him to death? Well, as Old Testament scholar Peter Inns writes, Moses can argue, pout, whine, and hold his breath about going to Egypt, and God will deal patiently with him. But circumcision is another matter. 
Now, why was God so serious about circumcision? Well, God had established circumcision as one of the covenant signs that his people were to have in order to demonstrate that they were in the covenant. It began in Genesis 17 when God told Abraham that he was to circumcise his whole household as a sign of the covenant. Therefore, if if Moses intended to serve the God of Abraham, he had a covenant obligation to to not only be circumcised himself, but to circumcise his sons. This was also an important part of his preparation for the Exodus. Later, when the Israelites celebrated their first Passover, every male would be required to be circumcised. And so Moses had to set an example. As commentator Phil Riken states, if he was going to lead the people out of Egypt, he himself had to keep the covenant. How could he be Israel's prophet if he neglected his spiritual responsibility to his own family by failing to include them in God's salvation? And so it seems that Moses had failed in his covenant obligations to the Lord and had not circumcised his son Gershom. You see, I think this, what this teaches us is this, is that your personal inadequacy is not a problem to God, but a lack of integrity, personal integrity is. You see, those who claim to be God's servants need to take God's call to personal holiness seriously. As Timothy would say to Paul, to, as Paul would say to Timothy, when looking for elders in the church, they are to be people who are above reproach, people who live out what they teach. And he says that they are to manage their own households well, for if they cannot manage their own household, how are they able to look after the household of God? But we see in this little narrative that Moses didn't. There were gaps in his integrity. And the Lord exposed them. But God was not done with Moses. Once again, we see that it was a woman who is the one who becomes the means of his salvation. As we've seen in this narrative so far, and as is true throughout all the Bible, God has a vital role for women to play in his kingdom. And I think that's especially important to say this week, when we saw women march all around Australia against misogyny and violence done against women. Now, while we can't buy hook, line, and sinker into all the assumptions of that movement, and I'm not suggesting we do, I think we have to make a statement. And the Bible is pretty clear that men and women together are made in the image of God. Men are not better than women, and women are not better than men. And even while God has made us different, and we do play different roles in marriage and in the family and in the church, there is no place for domestic violence. Let me say it clearly. There is no place for domestic violence and no place for misogyny in the church. And Zipporah comes to Moses' rescue and she does what Moses should have done. She circumcises their son, most probably because Moses was dying and couldn't even move. And notice the emphasis on blood in these two verses. Notice in verse 25 that she says, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And then in verse 26 it is repeated. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood. Now why such an emphasis on blood? Because without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. And notice, and I know this is a bit gross, but notice where does Zipporah take the foreskin covered with blood? She takes it in verse 25 and she touches what? Moses' feet. Remember last week, God had asked Moses for his feet. Take off your shoes because the ground you're standing on is holy ground. But now Moses' feet had become defiled. 
because he had not kept his covenant obligations, and so his feet needed to be cleansed, and they were cleansed through the blood of this covenant sign. You know, we all have gaps in our integrity. No person in this room is perfect, and there's no perfect leaders in this room, me included. As the Apostle Paul said, we all fall in many ways, but the difference, get this, listen to me now, the difference between leaders who last and make a difference and the ones who don't is those who make a difference when the gaps in their integrity are exposed. They come clean. They fess up. And they receive, they run to the only place of cleansing, and that is the blood of the new covenant, the blood of Jesus. You know, one of the biggest stories over the last few months has been that of Ravi Zacharias. Ravi was probably the world's leading evangelical apologist, meaning that he was one of the world's leading defenders of the faith. And just recently, after he died, it was revealed by an independent investigation conducted by his ministry that while he had this amazing platform ministry where he spoke to thousands, behind closed doors he was a sexual predator. He groomed and abused women and had over 200 naked photos of women on his phone. And it shocked many people. And it should shock us. It shocked me. Because how could someone who shared the gospel so eloquently and powerfully be so duplicit? How could God allow someone who did such evil behind closed doors have such an influential ministry? Well, I don't claim to have all the answers, but what I do know is that the evil that Ravi performed in private does not negate the truth of what he shared in public. You know, truth is truth. As the Apostle James tells us, even the demons know things that are true. They know that God is one and they shudder. But now his ministry is stained by a lack of integrity. You know, we will never think of his ministry again or him again without those horrible things coming to our minds. And I can imagine for the victims of Ravi Zacharias, it's even worse. And our hearts go out to those victims who have been treated so poorly. And it really is a clarion call to the evangelical church to do a better job believing victims. You know, Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5 that we are not to entertain an accusation against an elder except by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So we're not to entertain stories that have no basis in reality. But if people start coming forward with the same story, we are to believe them. And Paul says we are to rebuke those in sin publicly because we want to protect the victims. We want to protect them. You see, because what we've learned from this passage this morning is that while personal inadequacy is not necessarily a problem to God, personal integrity is. And he is willing to expose the gaps in the character of his leaders, even leaders as great as Moses, because that's how much it matters to him. Because God knows that gaps in the integrity of leaders can lead to much hurt and pain in the lives of the people placed under their care. You know, I recognize the awesome responsibility that I have as your senior pastor. And I recognize that the gaps in my integrity, the gaps in my character have had an effect on people in this room and will have an effect on the lives of people in this church. And I'm deeply sorry if it has for anyone who's listening to me personally, because everyone who's listening today, 
And here is the scary thing. The same sickness, the same evil that's infected Ravi Zacharias is the same evil that infects my heart and your heart. It's called sin. And the Bible says that the heart is wicked and sick and left unchecked and undealt with. There is no end to what can flow out of our hearts. And so when God exposes or comes in judgment or discipline like he did with Moses, even though it may not read like this, it's an expression of his love. He's doing it because he loves Moses and he wants Moses to be cleansed. And he loves his people and he wants them to follow a leader of integrity. You know, if I've reflected on the life of Ravi Zacharias this past week, I wonder how many times throughout the years... God gave Ravi opportunities to bring his sin out into the open. Maybe it started very young. And he heard messages about sin and he heard challenges and convicting messages. And yet he was unwilling. You know, in 2018, when it was exposed that he had an inappropriate relationship with one of his supporters' wives, he challenged it and made the couple in question sign a non-disclosure document and would not hand over his personal computer or his phone for people to investigate the claims. How sad. And even though it seems like he got away with it because he died before those horrible things were exposed, God is just. And he will appear before the judgment seat of Christ for the deeds done in the body. And I hope that Ravi is saved, and he truly did trust in Jesus as his only, only form of salvation. But make no mistake... God will set the record straight at the judgment seat of Christ. And maybe he might be one who Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, that their work will be burned up and they will suffer loss, though they themselves will be saved, but only through the fire. Now, I know this is a serious topic. And I can sense you are all all listening this morning very intensely, and I'm glad you are. And I felt that it needed to be addressed because it is a topic that's hot in our culture at the moment. And if we don't speak clearly and decisively about these things, if we're silent, then our culture may think that by our silence we agree with these things when it matters to God. Holiness matters to God in the lives of his leaders. That the church is above reproach matters to God because it is his precious bride. You see, the people whom God uses lay down what is in their hand before the Lord and they understand how seriously the Lord takes personal integrity in his leaders. And when he exposes gaps in their integrity, they admit it, confess it, and make it right. You know, there are a lot of parallels between Superman and the child of God. Like Superman, we are not of this world. We belong to another kingdom. Like Superman who got his strength from the literal sun at the center of our galaxy, we don't get our strength from ourselves, but from the Son of God who's at the center of our lives. But also like Superman, let no one think in this room that you can't be brought down and brought to your knees like Superman by something very small in your life. But you won't be brought to your knees by feelings of inadequacy. In fact, God tends to like people who are weak and feel inadequate. I'm sure our brother Serge, going to Russia to speak, senses his own inadequacy. God loves to use people who feel inadequate because he gets the glory. 
But there is one thing he doesn't, he doesn't tolerate, and that's gaps in integrity. It's serious to him. And so will you give over what is in your hand to the Lord so that the snake will be exposed, so that won't become a source of temptation in your life? Will you allow the gaps in your integrity to be exposed so that you can bring them out into the light to be healed by the blood of Jesus this morning? Do you know, as I've prepared this message, it's been a hard one to preach because now I've been with you for over 10 years and I have sinned and I have made mistakes and you know me. Like, you, you know who I am. And also when Tegan got sick, I didn't want to just put on a brave face and pretend that everything was perfect in our lives because that's not what God wants. God wants honesty, integrity. He wants truth in the innermost place. And I want our church to be a place of honesty and integrity and truthfulness. And we need to be that type of gospel community. We need to shun Christian celebrity where we put up people on a pedestal. But realize that everyone is the same. Everyone struggles with sin me included, and everyone needs the church family. I need you, church family. I need you to pray for me. I need you to speak into my life. I need your accountability. And you need the same, because we only grow. We only grow as Christians. As we together look to Christ, bring what is in the dark out into the light and have it cleansed by Jesus, the Son of God. Remember, He crushes the head of the serpent. We don't. We just lay it down before Him. Will you lay down what's in your hand today? Will you lay it down, give up control, give it over to Him? We're going to conclude with a prayer this morning. Here's the prayer. And um, let's, um, let's stand up. I want you to pray that to the Lord. Lord, I lay down before you today, you fill in the blank. I give up trying to control my life and give it over to you so that you would be in control. I confess right now the gaps in my integrity. Lord, help me to put right those things with others that I may have hurt. I thank you that the blood of Jesus covers all my sin, and I thank you that there is forgiveness and healing through him. I thank you that when you ask me to pick these things back up, they will be yours. And you'll be able to work through them because they are now under your control. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.